I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. Today, I am joined by Dr. Tisha Morgan. Tisha is a psychotherapist, a published author, and the co-founder of the Westland Academy of Clinical Sex Therapy. Dr. Morgan specializes in sex therapy and couples counseling and has had a successful full-time private practice for over 12 years. We are diving deep into the business of sex. This is such an interesting episode that really opened my eyes to a lot of things. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Tisha. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. I uh, first came across you when I saw your TED Talk, actually. Right, yes, <laughs> the TED Talk. The yeah. TED talk. <laughs> so for those who aren't familiar with you, tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Dr. Tisha Morgan. I'm a sex therapist and couples counselor, and I see clients in private practice, and I also uh, co-found the Westland Academy search and community building to teach therapists and counselors how to do sex therapy. Okay. So what does that entail, a sex therapist? Yes. It's kind of an, a new profession or a new niche. Mm. So a lot of people have questions or assumptions around it, but typically it's a counselor or a therapist that has a master's degree at least or a doctorate in counseling. And then they choose to specialize in sex or sexuality, human sexuality in general. As a sex therapist, you typically see a whole gamut of different people and issues. For men, I typically work with men around erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, delayed ejaculation, trouble getting or sustaining erections. For women, it's often around low libido <laughs> or painful intercourse, so dyspareunia, vulvodynia, vaginismus, things like that. And then for couples, it could be anything from working through things like infidelity to kink-related issues. So maybe one person wants to be in a kink community or is interested in BDSM and the other one isn't, mm -hmm. or they want to navigate that more effectively. Mm -hmm. Or I also have lots of couples that are in the LGBTQ, you know, 2A plus, S plus community, as well as the poly community. So polyamory, swinging, mm -hmm. ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. So yeah, the whole gamut of fetishism and, you know, pedophilia to just typical, you know, my partner wants to have more sex than I do, or just communication concerns kind of around intimacy. So what led you to this? I mean, when you started your education, did you know that this was the area you wanted to go into? Not really. No, I was doing my master's and I was doing a lot of my presentations around like the etiology of fetishism, for instance. And one of my professors was like, you know, a lot of your papers seem to be about these sorts of things. You know, mm -hmm. you could probably specialize in this. And it was a light bulb moment because I didn't know you could. Like I said, <laughs> it's a pretty neat profession. And I didn't know, aside from Sue Johansson from the Sunday Night Sex Show, who was a <laughs> nurse and toured around the university circuit, kind of teaching and doing guest speaking, I didn't think that that was an actual profession. So that's kind of what led me to continue because I thought if you're going to specialize in anything to do with psychology, why not pick the most interesting facet? I mean, in my opinion anyway, so. Mm-hmm, 100%. Yeah. It's funny because I was just actually talking with a friend of mine about who's polyamorous, which for those who don't know, it means you have an open sexual relationship with more than one person at a time. So he, him and his wife have been married for a number of years and he has a girlfriend and she has a boyfriend. And it's just, it was very interesting to hear his explanation on it and why it worked for them and how it's helped their marriage because it's something that's obviously very rare. <laughs> What's your, your take on that type of relationship? Yeah, I think it can definitely work. I think in the best case scenarios, it's when both partners in a couple are gung-ho and excited about opening up their relationship or their marriage mm -hmm. and whether they agree on the type of open relationship they would like. Mm -hmm. Because There's obviously vast differences between swinging 
and polyamory could be, for instance. So the types and that the fact that they have really good communication. So if they're able to communicate amazingly, and especially if one partner is really prone to experiencing compersion, which is like feeling extreme joy and happiness over watching your partner have joy and happiness, let's say by dating someone else or falling in love with someone else. Yeah. So, but I mean, I feel like it's a, it's a small percentage of the population that really feels compersion. Mostly Mm -hmm. it's couples battling with jealousy related issues, which is, you know, normal, but I think it doesn't work when one partner is gung ho and the other one is just kind of coming along for the ride. So I think that yes, in certain facets, when, things are met, such as I said, the good communication and partners on board, it can definitely be an amazing relationship structure. And it's actually more common than most people think. Oh, really? It's just still quasi underground because there's a lot of stigma around it, you know, (laughs) but it's actually quite common. And each community has their own signs and ways of showing other community members that they are poly or open. So for instance, we used to live in Vancouver most of the year and there obviously lots of apartment buildings. So there would be different color lights above someone's door or a different string of lights in their main window at the front entrance. And that could let everyone know what they're into. In Kelowna, actually, there's an area of town called Kettle Valley. And there, a lot of the garage doors are cracked about a foot. And those are kind of that can community's indicator about being open. Yeah. So it's actually fairly common or more common than you think. Do you think that humans are meant to be monogamous? Do you think that we as a species, is it in our DNA to be in monogamous relationships? That's, that's the question. That's the, that's the multiple of a question. I don't know. I think we probably aren't if we look at pretty much all animal species across the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even species that we used to think were monogamous, different types of spur- bird species, for instance, mm-hmm. the more work we do with them and the genetic testing, we realize, well, it looks like they're monogamous because they hang out all day and they're staying together to rear their offspring. Mm-hmm. But actually, like the female is going and having sex with a different bird and then coming back and that bird is now raising the offspring. So there's very very, very few animals across the planet that are monogamous. So if we just look from like an evolutionary kind of animalistic, because we're animals as well, mm-hmm. then probably not. It's probably more societal. And, you know, I mean, monogamy wasn't really that prevalent until what we believe until the advent of agriculture. So agriculture comes into effect. And now we're not, you know, hunter gatherers and roaming around. But now we're situated in one plot of land, and we're farming that land and working hard for that. Now, how do we guarantee now that I'm passing my land down to my offspring? So now when we start to have property and things, now it becomes really important to know whose offspring is who. And now, you know, then Victorian times come in and, you know, sexual repression. And here we come out to monogamy Mm -hmm. as our standard norm. But whether that's what we were meant to be, you know, before agriculture, (laughs) I doubt. I doubt it. Hmm. What animals are monogamous? Oh, really great question. (laughs) I feel like I should know the answer Yeah, they say that swans are monogamous. There's actually a pair of gay swans in Vancouver. That's amazing. Yeah. And they're in the little bay just before you head over the Lionsgate Bridge, or they have been for years. That's wonderful. (laughs) Two two male swans that have paired, for lack of a better term, was wonderful. (laughs) The gay community very much embraced them. But yeah, they say swans are. But again, genetically, if we tested their offspring, who knows? Yeah. So how much of your profession involves the dating and relationship side of things as opposed to just the sexual side? I would say pretty much all of it (laughs) because I don't think sex exists in a bubble or a vacuum. It's always interconnected with many different Mm -hmm. things power, control, vulnerability, love. There's just so many ways that we work out our stuff through intimacy and sex as well. So yeah, I think all of it connects with people and relationships. It's not just about the sex. Even if it comes to my door and it looks more straightforward, like, oh, I'm having trouble you know, I have premature ejaculation and I just want to fix that. I mean, Mm -hmm. we can give homework exercises and tips and techniques to fix the premature ejaculation for sure. Mm -hmm. But is that a symptom of something else? Is it behavioral and psychological or is it just, you know, so it's looking at all the different facets from a holistic approach that really is what works. Mm -hmm. Do you see uh, many entrepreneurs, CEOs? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. 
I was going to say often the higher up someone's position is, the more power they have. For instance, like you mentioned CEO. Mm -hmm. It's funny, you can almost, when they sit down in front of me, I can almost guess what type of person they're going Hmm. to be in the bedroom. Because often if you have a lot of power, let's say make a lot of money, Mm -hmm. have a lot of people underneath you where you're making a lot of decisions, Mm -hmm. a lot of responsibility, then Mm -hmm. often you'll want to pendulum swing the opposite way in the bedroom and you'll want to be more of a sub or a submissive and be dominated in the bedroom or have someone else take control and lead the way. You just, you've got to find balance somewhere in life, you know? So I find that pretty interesting too. Again, how we use sex to balance ourselves in many ways. Mm-hmm. One of the companies that I have is, it's called Lines Elite. It's a luxury matchmaking agency. So a lot of the clients are CEOs, entrepreneurs, executives, like usually the top of their game. And they all seem to have a lot of the similar issues especially with when it comes to just dating and relationships. If you are an entrepreneur, dating is generally harder. Mm-hmm. The, the work hours being long and stressful, and as a result, it makes for difficult relationships. Is this a conversation you find yourself having with clients? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that is interesting that you've noticed the same similar kind of patterns. Mm-hmm. Yes, a lot of entrepreneurs, workaholics, for lack of a better term, <laughs> um, that come in that have relationship issues and sexuality-based issues. Again, often an offshoot of because of what they do or where they're putting their focus or lack of focus mm-hmm. or the amount of stress and anxiety they have in their life due to their job as well mm-hmm. can affect their sexuality and their performance. And I find that a lot of them at some point, they, they make it in their mind like another job. So it's like, they'll come to me like, okay, I need to find this by this date with these attributes and I'll like them if they check off all the boxes kind of thing. It's like, okay, it's not a business deal. <laughs> Take this back. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do this in your, your typical fashion. <laughs> yeah, it's very much the logical brain taking over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what leads their life on, you know, 95% of the time. So they think that they can imply that to all areas or facets of their life. Yeah, they often struggle with true intimacy and connection as well because to turn off that logical part of the brain mm-hmm. and to really just feel the feels and then have the emotional intelligence to express it can be very difficult for those subpopulations as well. What kind of tips do you give them? I don't know if it's like a, like you say, do A, B, and C on this checklist and mm-hmm. then now well, you'll be kind of depends. To, yeah. I think a lot of it is just working almost like from a somatic place of where are you feeling that? Can you label that emotion? Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you think that emotion is coming from? And can you verbalize that? So I guess working on the emotional intelligence and the communication factor, I think is a big piece of it. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the anxiety and often depression that comes along with the stress of the work, managing that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is obviously a very, a very stressful (laughs) area of life. Yeah. And another common scenario we find is, yeah, people who have been married for a long time and now find themselves suddenly single. And they're just kind of, you know, in this panic of what do I do? (laughs) Where do I go from here? (laughs) It's a very common scenario. It's usually either one or that, right? You know, Mm -hmm. they've been married for 30 years and then it's like, okay, well, how do I be with somebody new? Where do I even start? They're they're just so, so scared and nervous. Do you have clients like that too? Oh, yeah. And incredibly overwhelming if you've been out of the dating scene for a long time. And especially mm-hmm. with, you know, the social media and apps that we have now, you know, if you don't feel like you're a Tinder person and don't want to go down that road and, mm-hmm. you know, how do you meet someone if it isn't online and how do you know that it's not just a hookup or maybe you do want to hook up. And actually the STI rate is very prevalent in the above 50 population. Wow. Yeah. Everyone thinks it's the teens and twenties, but actually the highest population is like over 50. Really? Yeah, because most of them had been married throughout their entire life. And then, you know, they become single or their partner dies, for instance, and then they're dating again. And they don't think that they need to, especially maybe they've gone through menopause or they had a vasectomy. So they don't think, why do I need to use a condom? We're not going to get pregnant. Ah. Um, So kind of a lot of factors compile into the spread of STIs in that older population. That's shocking. Yeah. I actually, I'd read recently that it is high in elderly people, like in mm-hmm. nursing homes and things like that. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Especially because, I mean, females tend to outlive males as well. And there might be just a handful of men in the nursing population and they're still sexual. I mean, we think as, of elderly people as asexual mm-hmm. because a lot of the times it grosses us out to think of like our grandparents' age having sex, but mm-hmm. they're very much still sexually active and have mm-hmm. needs and wants. And then there might be just a handful of men that are kind of plopping mm-hmm. around to lots of different rooms. So again, it can spread really quickly. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of a good sex life affects your overall health and ultimately like your business endeavors and things like that. Yeah, I think it differs for everyone. I mean, some people's sex and intimacy is so incredibly important to them. It is part of their identity, like who they are as a human. Mm -hmm. And other people, again, on the vast, if we pendulum swing the vast opposite way, like more towards like the asexuality kind of front, that sex might even gross them out or they have absolutely no interest or they could go their entire life and not have sex again and could really care less. But I think that is, again, if we're just looking at the mechanics of like, are they having intercourse? But I think intimacy in general, like the broad umbrella term Mm -hmm. is, you know, connecting with someone intimately and that can be emotional as well, not just physical. Mm -hmm. And I think that is important to pretty much all humans. And yeah, that could definitely affect all facets of your life if that is lacking or non-existent. Mm-hmm. What would cause somebody to be asexual? Is that just how somebody is born? Yeah, I mean, we're still doing a lot of research around <laughs> asexuality, and there's because there's really not a lot out there. Mm-hmm. But I, I often like to describe asexuality as kind of like asexual orientation, almost. Like if you are, let's say, cisgendered female who likes males, okay. if and that's kind of your orientation. Now, if someone came along and said, okay, here's this woman. Now you need to be in a relationship with her and have sex with her every week and desire her. You might be like, yeah, like I, I maybe could kiss her, but mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if I want to go all, all down that route, especially not weekly. Hmm. That feeling that you might have in your body, having sex with someone, let's say it's the same sex again, if you're heterosexual, mm-hmm. might be the same kind of feeling that someone who is asexual might feel wow. about having sex with anybody. It's kind of like, yeah. Like maybe I'll hold your hand, but uh. mm-hmm. but again, asexuality is a spectrum, just like all types of sexuality and human behavior in general. Mm-hmm. So some asexuals on like, let's say the far left are very like, I don't even want to hold hands with you. The thought of kissing grosses me out. And other people on the other side of the spectrum of asexual who still might identify with it might be married with children. And just kind of like, this is what I was supposed to do. And I kind of fell in love with this person as a whole because this person is awesome. But like, if I, we never had sex again, I'd be fine with that because I don't mm-hmm. really like it and I don't want it. But I want to have children or I, what have you. So it's a broad spectrum, of course. But yeah, we kind of like to think of it more of like a sexual orientation on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know why I picture that being more on the female side as opposed to the male. Yeah, it is more prevalent in women than men. Is it something that you treat or... We only tend to treat things, I'm using air quotes, even though you can't see me, we tend to treat things if they are a problem for the person Mm -hmm. and the person feels like it is a problem Mm -hmm. or they are a harm to themselves or others. Mm -hmm. So, right, like a pedophile might come in and say, there's no problem, this is fine, but he's a harm to others around him, therefore we should treat it. Mm -hmm. But if somebody comes in, let's say, with asexuality and they're like, I'm cool with this, it doesn't bother me at all, then awesome, you do you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you live life. I don't know if I could handle working with pedophiles. Yeah, you know, again, if we're on just to, to segue, if we're on the sexual orientation front, a lot of theories kind of revolve around pedophilia as a sexual orientation almost. Wow. So in all of the things and all the therapeutic techniques we've tried to use over the years, we have really minimal effects on <laughs> pedophilia. And wow. again, to use that same token, it's like if someone you know told you now that you had to have sex with women, we look at like gay conversion camps and therapy that they still do in the States, but thank God Canada has made that illegal. We can no longer do because they don't work and they're extremely harmful. Mm-hmm. But if we think, okay, I can just make this gay person straight if we do enough therapy, mm-hmm. we've realized over the years that that's unethical and wrong. But yet we look at pedophilia and go, oh, well, we'll just give you enough therapy and now you won't be a pedophile anymore, yada, mm-hmm. yada. But if it is an orientation, there's a reason this isn't working. So really, it's more about minimizing harm to self and others. I think pedophiles actually get a really bad rap because we think that they're all horrific predators. Mm-hmm. But actually, 
a large percentage of pedophiles commit suicide because they can't live with themselves. They don't want to commit harm to anyone. But if that is who they're attracted to always, but they can never act on that, nor do they want to act on that, what do they do? They end up extremely depressed and anxious. They end up with medications or addicted to drugs and alcohol, and then eventually often commit suicide. So a lot of the work is around building community and friendships and working on depression and anxiety and like management to get them into society and making friendships. And then obviously doing no harm to others is a big piece of it. So again, just like when we look at asexuality as a spectrum, pedophilia as a spectrum as well, right? There are really bad pedophiles, as we all know, and we all hear in the news. But there's also a percentage of them that are not really not on that kind of side of things that I, I don't think we often talk about because it's such a a hated group of people, you know, mm-hmm. and I understand. I mean, I have children myself, so mm-hmm. it's been more difficult for me throughout the years to work with pedophiles since having children than mm-hmm. before I had kids. So I still get those emotions, you know, I'm not immune to those feelings for sure. Mm-hmm. But you operate on the very scientific medical side of things. I try to, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm human, so <laughs> I, I, still, I still get triggered and I yeah. still have those feelings. So I work with a a small percentage of pedophiles that I feel are really trying to change and are are doing no harm or have never acted out. And it's about maintenance, you know, those sorts of things. So definitely my door is not a swinging door open to all pedophiles because I couldn't handle that either. Just emotionally, I would burn Mm -hmm. out and not be able to do my job. So but you do have the opportunity to help people, which is wonderful. Yeah. You must hear some crazy things all over the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I definitely do. (laughs) (laughs) Like at what point are you like, okay, this is a bit too much for me. It used to in the beginning of my career, I feel Mm -hmm. like hit me a little harder. I feel like my poker face has gotten a lot better. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know anymore if anything really shocks me (laughs) to tell you the truth. I think if you come at it with a lens of curiosity, wanting to understand and empathy and non-judgment, mm-hmm. it really doesn't matter what the person says. And once they feel that that is legitimately the place that you're coming from, is wanting to be curious and help and yes. provide a safe space for them, mm-hmm. then they definitely open the floodgates. And that's really where like the real work happens. So yeah, I definitely heard some stuff that I can't unhear that I maybe didn't want to hear. It was quite shocking to me <laughs> yeah, that I probably it. never will forget. But overall, yeah, I, it's all good now. I feel mm-hmm. like it's, yeah. What are some of the most common things, common issues that people come to you for? So yeah, men, it's mostly erectile dysfunction, as I mentioned. <laughs> women, the low libido or painful intercourse libido. is yeah. typical. So if I'm doing alone sessions with men or women, they're typically in those two categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and couples, I mean, often it's just their sex life has never been good or has taken mm-hmm. a tank. And they really just want to work on resentments, communication, make things better. They're realizing that it's really hindering their relationship and their connection or their marriage. And it's, I mean, sex and sexuality is so hard to talk about. I mean, if it was easy, I wouldn't have a job, you know? (laughs) So it can be really difficult for people to sit down, especially with a stranger and be like, you know, this is the way I masturbate and this is my fantasy and this Mm -hmm. is where I want you to touch me and where I don't want you to touch me. And those are really difficult things for anyone to say. So... Mm Yeah, I guess just communication. Like what are the steps if somebody's lost if their their sexual relationship? What what do you Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends kind of what they're presenting with. If they're just in a relationship where the sex is not great, then it's a lot of I usually do one couple session together to kind hmm. of watch them interact, how they Mm -hmm. speak with each other, the stories that they're telling, where their viewpoints are, where the issues are. And then I like to usually split them up for one alone session each, one to give them the opportunity to say anything they might not have felt comfortable saying in front of their partner. Mm -hmm. And two, to really get some background information about their life. We call it like family of origin or family history, because that can play a big role in how we express our sexuality or our inability to do that. So it gives me more insight into each of them individually. And then we tend to come back together as a couple and work through the communication of whatever said issue is and try to kind of talk our way through it with some psycho-ed pieces obviously peppered throughout. And I tend to give lots of homework as well because I know Uh therapy is expensive and most people don't want to see my face months and years from now. So (laughs) I feel like just as much to happen outside of session as what happens in. So they can come back to me and say like, that's not working for us. That was useless. Don't give us that again. Or that was amazing homework. That's really working. Can we have more of that? And so we can kind of contour therapy depending on, again, their issue and what works for them. Hmm. And I know that you had done 
I had seen something in an interview with you about heightening your sexual satisfaction. Okay. Yes. I, I, like, I don't even remember that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely lots of ways you can heighten your sexual satisfaction. Again, it depends on the person and kind of where you're at. Are you starting at a level of minus five or are you close to the 10 already? And it's looking into tantric ways to heighten things, you know, it's a broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. So your TED talk about masturbation, what led to that topic? A good question. I had been asked to do the TED Talk and I thought, well, I can't say no, it's a TED Talk. Like I'm probably never going to get this opportunity again. But I I hadn't thought to myself, oh, I really want to talk about masturbation. They had just said, hey, do you want to do a TED Talk? Come back to us in a week with a format, ideas, and like, you know, a rough script. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, shit. Okay, <laughs> here we go. So it just kind of came to me because a lot of the sexuality-based issues that I saw were based around masturbation or behavioral issues from masturbation. Mm -hmm. So in all honesty, I look back on the talk now and I would tweak it a lot from what it was. Mm -hmm. I feel like I get at least five or six emails a week. Wow. uh, Mostly from people in the Middle East. Their sexual education there is really rough. A lot of men from like Iran, Iraq email me with sexual abuse questions based on that TED talk. But a lot of it is around porn, porn addiction, masturbation addiction, how to stop that, the no fat movement, and a lot of hate mail from that talk saying like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm addicted to masturbation. I'm addicted to porn. It is bad for you because the talk is very positive around masturbation. Mm -hmm. And yeah, looking back on it now, hindsight's 2020, I would have added pieces into that talk around pornography and addiction. Like that wasn't in my scope when I was talking about masturbation, but I think that is so prevalent nowadays that obviously that needed to be talked about and I didn't touch on it enough. So yeah, I would have changed that. But aside from that, yeah, you know, it was arduous, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah. It's an experience and it's a great thing to add to the resume. Yeah, definitely. I had a friend who was telling me a few months ago about porn addiction and how common it is for people with that have substance abuse issues for it to coincide with porn addictions. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, usually it's a trigger either one to propel them into the other one. Mm-hmm. And they had had an issue before and yeah, they had gone hand in hand and I was really surprised and they said, no, it's very, very common. And I was really surprised by that. I didn't think that porn addiction was a common thing. Yeah, very common actually, especially oh. for, for the male population. Mm-hmm. Not that women can't be, but predominantly it's for men. And yeah, your friend is spot on. It usually coincides with other type of addictions. So mm-hmm. substance abuse, alcohol abuse, mm-hmm. uh, those sorts of things. Uh, just the addictive personality kind of just looking at all ah, facets of yeah. life. Because I mean, again, pornography addiction is such a heated debate topic in our industry. Mm. Some leaders say you can't be addicted to pornography and masturbation because the research isn't out to prove it yet. So people, if you're coming from a really scientific standpoint, Mm -hmm. you're saying, look, show me some peer-reviewed scientific journals that have been published from credible sources that show me that this is a thing mm-hmm. and I'll start to get on board with you. But I just feel like the research hasn't caught up to it yet because there's just not enough on it. But in my personal opinion, yes, I do feel like you can be addicted to porn and masturbation. I think you can be addicted to anything. You can be addicted yeah. to ketchup, you know, yeah. and I see it on a daily basis, kind of the fallout from that. So yeah, your friend is spot on with the comorbidity of those two. Hmm. It's interesting. And I guess it's because, yeah, nobody talks about it. And be like, yeah, so I had a porn addiction. <laughs> Definitely. That's not the topic at most uh, cocktail parties. Well, yeah. at, at my cocktail party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you must get asked everything, you know, everywhere. Yeah. Like, so yeah. sex, best sex tips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. It's funny, and depending on my mood of the day, if somebody asks you what you do for a living, sometimes I'm just like, oh, I'm an HR or, you know, I, when I just don't feel like talking about things, but depending on my mood, you know, at a cocktail party or at a bar, yeah, for sure. And then, then the questions tend to, to mm-hmm. flow from there. But yeah, I don't mind it. It's, it's a fun topic to talk about. So, And you're kind of paving a way for a lot of people because it is a, a new industry, which is always really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I get a lot of emails from people saying, hey, I want to be a sex therapist. What's the road to do that? 
can you help me like do what you do? I can't find much online to kind of show me what to do. So yeah, it's, it's a fairly new industry. There's not a good paved road with arrows pointing in the right direction. What attributes does somebody need to specifically be a sex therapist? Like education wise or like personality traits? Personality traits. What type of attributes would that person need? I think in my personal opinion, to be a good therapist in general, yeah, definitely a sex therapist, you need to be really open mm-hmm. and empathetic yes. and you need to be really curious and understanding and not judgmental. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to hold the space for someone when they're breaking down and know when to impart wisdom, know when to keep your mouth shut, not to be too much of a teacher, more of a listener, because usually the person has the wisdom within them and you're mm-hmm. kind of just allowing them to hold the space to find it. So I think those probably make the best traits. And then as far as the sex therapy on top of it, I think just being really open and non-judgmental about sex and sexuality. There's no right and wrong, again, unless you're causing harm to others. If we're using the broad umbrella of consent and everything that I'm saying, as long as there's consent, there's no right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And if you come from the standpoint of no right or wrong, or there's nothing that's weird or abnormal, then I think you could probably effectively do sex therapy. I think as soon as you have judgments in one camp or the other, then your clients will feel it and you'll project that onto them. Mm-hmm. And somebody who doesn't get embarrassed easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can't get a red face when someone mm. tells you that you know they're into scat play. And have you ever done that? <laughs> you, can't, you can't just... Get all blotchy and go, what? No, uh, what? No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Break it out in hives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scat plays poop sex, right? It is involvement of feces in intimacy, yeah. Okay. And tell me, that's not common, is it? It's less common on okay. the scale of kink and fetishism, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. But it's definitely out there. Definitely have clients that are that are into that. What about adult baby diapers? What is that uh, about? ABDLs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The ABDLs, the adult baby diaper lovers, Mm. as we typically refer to them. Now, again, that can be two subcategories because someone can be an adult baby and not want to wear the diaper diaper lovers. Some people can be diaper lovers, but not want to fully embrace being a baby. They just want to wear the diaper and chill in their house. So there's different camps as well, but under the umbrella term. Yeah. Yeah, again, more common than you think it is. So they just like walking around in a diaper? Yeah, so like some diaper lover kind of categories, they might have a long day at work or the office and they come home and or a lot of people would strip down and get into jogging pants, Mm -hmm. uh, cozy clothes. Their cozy clothes might be putting on a diaper and sitting on the couch and watching TV while they pee or poo or those sorts of things in the diaper. So And do they, they get off by that or...? Some of them have a sexual connotation to it. So Mm -hmm. some will get off sexually by doing that or by being the, again, adult baby and doing play with like a mother figure. So maybe they'll have, it could be a pro-dom, for instance, come over and they will be telling the baby what to do or changing the baby's diaper or feeding it a bottle or doing playtime in a crib with some balls and rocking them to sleep or even breastfeeding, those sorts of things. So it can be fully immersed in that kind of sense. And in some cases, then there's not a sexual component to it. There's no sex or masturbation Hmm. or orgasms. It's just immersed in the play. Hmm. So again, a wide gamut. Hmm. I wonder how much of that coincides with how they were raised and the relationships with their mom. Yeah. So again, lots of theories, lots of causal theories. Some adult baby diaper lovers have had trauma in their past, Mm -hmm. sexuality-based trauma, sexual abuse. Wow. And the diaper is often sometimes a barrier, a level of protection or comfort Mm -hmm. that they feel. Again, not all ABDLs. I don't want to paint that picture. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like everyone, it's like the 50 shades of gray that people watch and then they assume that that is healthy BDSM and anyone who's into BDSM must have had a troubled traumatic past and been sexually abused when typically that is not at all the case and that's Mm -hmm. not healthy BDSM. So I don't want to paint a picture of ABDLs being all sexually molested, but there obviously are people and that can be some of the reasons. Often, again, we talk about like high powered CEOs and how they might want to pendulum swing to be in a sub in the bedroom. Room. Sometimes those with really stressful, high-powered positions, like I had one client that was a police officer and SWAT teams and 90% of his job was going in with machine guns and wow. doing drug raids. 
And then at the end of the day, and he like rode a motorcycle and was very alpha male. But then at the end of the day, like he needed a safe place to regress. Hmm. needed something that was the complete opposite of that, the most vulnerable and non-corrupt and just innocent and easy, you know, the most simplistic life to Mm -hmm. sit in. And that's like a coping mechanism. So again, it depends a lot. And then yes, like you say, mommy, daddy issues, we can go into attachment style and Bulby's theory of attachment style, how that plays out into your adult baby tendencies. But again, many theories on where it can come from. Learning all these things and knowing what you know, have you found that this has impacted your love life? Because I would think like that would be intimidating. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I definitely got that when I was single. I sometimes you could, you learned a lot from the person trying to date you based on how they felt Mm -hmm. about or how they reacted to your profession. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of men that thought that because I was a sex therapist, I must be like a porn star. Yeah. Super Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I must be amazing in bed and sleep with lots of people. And yeah, so that kind of sleazy, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. subgroup, I got a lot of that when I was single for sure. But yeah, it definitely, sometimes it's hard to shut your brain off and not so much in the, like my own intimacy with my partner, but just at the end of the day, like sometimes mm-hmm. you have, you know, six clients in a day and you hear some really traumatic, troubling things, yes. just like any therapist would. And then you come home and it can be really difficult to brush that off. Sometimes I just want to have I a glass of wine and stare yeah. at the wall because I just have zero, I have nothing left to give at that point. So it's yes. more so letting that go at the door and not wanting to dump that on my partner or look at my daughter and go, now I'm anxious. Now I'm anxious. Like I don't ever want that to happen to her. And then becoming like super helicopter parent anxiety because hearing all these stories of other little girls and what they went through and their trauma. So it's more so having my own therapy and with my therapist and doing self-care so that I don't hold that energy less so than, you know, specifically in the bedroom. Wow. So you see a therapist yourself? Oh, every therapist needs a therapist. Really? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think it's unethical to not do your own therapy. It's like like a doctor prescribing a drug and saying, take this, it will work. And then having the same issue and going home and going, "Mm, I don't want to take those pills, that won't work. Hmm. It's like if I think that therapy works and I believe in it, but then I don't do my own therapy, then I'm the biggest hypocrite of all. So yeah, I think ongoing therapy is important for self-care, for your own work, to progress as a human being, and to unload the shit that you hear. Yes. I dump it on my therapist, my therapist dumps it on their therapist, like it just goes around (laughs) in the circle, you know? It's really hard to find it. I mean, I have a great therapist now, but it took me a long time to find one that I actually really liked and felt, you know, made a difference. And I used to just think, yeah, I didn't like therapists. And I kept trying them and kept trying them. And then I found one, yeah, that was just perfect. And the way that he changes the narrative in my brain is just constantly gives me aha moments where it's like, okay, like, why didn't I think of it that way? Mm. And has just really changed my life. I had a lot of problems, yeah, with, with mental health in the past after losing my sister in 2011. She had cystic fibrosis. Both my siblings did. Oh my gosh. So I grew up in a very high stress household because they were always, they were terminally ill and there was a lot of emergencies. She'd had to undergo two double lung transplants and things like that. And then when it got to the point where I, I lost her, like she had tried to get me to do therapy growing up and I was in the mindset, which I think a lot of people were earlier on in the 90s and things where it's like, no, I don't need that. That's for weak people or, you know, that's that's not for me. I don't need that. Like the mental illness was a weakness or, mm. you know, something that we didn't talk about, especially in the small city of Stratford. Mm. And yeah, by the time I got to 2011, when she passed away, it was like, oh my gosh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I'm going to survive, I need to figure something out. Otherwise, this is it. And yeah, thank God, eventually... I came across this therapist, but I really do think that everybody needs someone in some capacity just to to go over how they're thinking and why they're thinking, why we have the narratives in our head that we do, like how they've become that way. You know, like I've always had a big fear around being sick, you know, like I'll get a cold and immediately get a panic attack thinking that I've got pneumonia and I'm at the doctor asking for an x-ray, you know, and he said to me, do you think maybe it's because you grew up in a household where your sibling, I was the middle, were terminally ill 
And when they would get sick, being it was a lung disease, it was an emergency and they would be rushed to the hospital. So your brain developed in a way that when you're sick, your immediate thought is this is life or death. And you know, even just like things like that all the time, it's like, aha, yes, (laughs) it is. Yeah. (laughs) That's that family of origin work that I was saying that I feel like is so important because that's looking at your upbringing. Like you say, if you constantly have siblings that are sick to the level of what what you experience, Mm -hmm. then no doubt your brain would connect those two things. I have, you know, a cold and I'm probably also going to die. Like that's just, Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you found a therapist that works for you because I agree. I think some people try to try therapy once or twice or, you know, with one or two therapists and they're like, nah, it's not for me or it didn't work. And then they just wash their hands of that. And I think a lot of it is finding a therapist that has the therapeutic modality that clicks with you because Mm -hmm. there's so many modalities and that you like them as a human. Yes. You know, that you connect with their energy and their vibes and Mm -hmm. like, you know, who they are. And if both of those two factors don't line up, then you know, you're just not, it's not going to work. You're not going to do progress. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that can be a battle to find. So good for you that you kept trudging through till you find that click. And I think the narrative that you talk about with like mental health being stigmatized and like a weakness, Mm -hmm. it is changing that narrative to, it's not the fact that it's a weakness and only weak people go to therapy. It's that, in my opinion anyway, that going to therapy like mindfulness is a superpower it's yes. like, you know, it's like I could be like everybody else walking around the street or I could analyze what the heck is going on in my brain and mm-hmm. like, you know, don't let the crap negativity live in there. And instead I'm going to implant these and I'm going to like rise above all of this. Yeah. It's like, it's a way to make you healthier and stronger and smarter and, you know, emotionally intelligent and mm-hmm. all of those things that we try to teach kids in school that education is important. I'm like, well, therapy is education, you mm-hmm. know? So it is that narrative shift. It is a hundred percent. Now I think of it kind of as, you know, how I go to the gym and I eat healthy. It's all part of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm very open about it. And I talk about it often and no longer mm-hmm. something that I'm ashamed of by any means. Yeah. I totally find it as a strength and something, you know, I think that people that are brave enough to initially reach out and get that help and things is, should be seen as a definite strength and a positive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I talk about my therapist all the time to all my friends and family. And I'm always like, as my therapist always says, I'm always quoting her and <laughs> I'm really, all right, enough, enough. But it is like, the more you talk about it, the more it becomes normal and more that there's a language around it, then the less stigma there is. So the more we can inject that in everyday conversation, then it doesn't become a jarring, oh my gosh, you have a therapist? It's just like, oh yeah, because everybody's talking about it, you know? So good for you that you're open about it and Thank keep chatting. You. you must have two stigmas against you because <laughs> you're a therapist and a sex therapist. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you learn to walk in it. Walk. <laughs> I'm sure you probably, unfortunately, don't get many referrals. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, from friends, I can't take any friend referrals on. I get a lot of referrals from doctors, which is okay. nice. Yeah. Yes, so, which is a great Googles. compliment. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's helpful. I mean, a lot of people go to the doctor and they're like, this is what's happening. And the doctor goes, there's nothing wrong with you. We did all the tests. Like there's no pill or here's a pill and the pill's not working. You need to go see a sex therapist. Here's a card. So that's often people go to the doctor first. And then when those methods don't work, then I'm kind of the next stop. Yeah. The next stop. What are uh, some of the biggest misconceptions around what you do? That I have sex with clients or that I touch clients or that I go into like clients' bedrooms and watch them have sex or (laughs) physically. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the biggest one I get. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Or that there's really no education around it. That it's Mm. just, I like sex, therefore I talk about it. I've had a lot of sex, therefore I can give people advice that they don't realize how much effort and schooling goes into it. Mm-hmm. So I think those are probably the biggest ones. Yeah. Do clients ask you personal questions about your sex life? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do. I don't typically tend to answer, although I have, but I think setting boundaries is really important because mm-hmm. it's not about me. So I typically tend to flip it on them. Like, why is it important for you to know that answer? What does that mean to you if I answer yes or no to that question? You know, like more exploring their curiosity of why that's important. It's not so much often that I would be embarrassed to tell them the answer, but I want to know why they want to know is more important. And sometimes self-disclosure can help a therapeutic bond. And then I will. 
again, depending on the question and the client and how long I've seen them for and why I think the reason is that they're asking. Mm -hmm. Because maybe they're asking because they don't feel like I'm normalizing what they're going through enough, right? Or they think that you're, you think that they're weird or judging them. Totally. So sometimes that can be a good indicator for me that like, do they feel like I'm passing judgment or that I'm not normalizing? So almost seeing it as feedback if they're Mm -hmm. asking me a lot of questions. So yeah. And what is the the most common misconceptions that men seem to have about women in the bedroom? I think with mainstream pornography nowadays, men see pornography and think that that is women's sexuality. And then if their wife or partner or girlfriend or person that they're having sex with doesn't live up to those standards or likes something different or doesn't like those things, then they think that their partner is broken or something wrong with them or weird. So I think that is probably one of the biggest issues today that I see. So whether it's females should be able to orgasm through penetration Mm -hmm. and do so easily in a multitude of positions, or women love to have ejaculate on their face, or sex is over over when a man ejaculates, or Mm -hmm. it's all about attaining an orgasm. I could continue with a billion of these. So I think it's more that, that the misconceptions come around female sexuality, because mainstream porn is made predominantly by men for men. And it's Hollywoodized. Hollywoodized? Hollywood? You know what I'm saying. I wonder if there is any female porn producers. There is, but it's a small subset. And yeah. And it's not to say that female porn producers can't produce the same kind of porn or male-centric porn because they can and do. And there's some male porn producers that produce porn that is lovely and wonderful. And when I say lovely, it doesn't mean it has to be soft erotica. Mm -hmm. Again, no judgment on more hardcore type of sex. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying all porn is bad. I'm definitely not anti-porn. I think we just need better porn education. It's like I say to men, you sit down in front of the TV and you watch a movie like Fast and the Furious and you see these speeding cars jumping through a high rise into another high rise and then they walk out alive. You wouldn't think, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to try that. That seems like a fantastic idea because you'd be like, well, obviously it's a movie, but we don't think of porn the same way and we really kind of need to. So yeah, again, about education. When you said about women orgasming from penetration only, that's pretty rare. There needs to be some other stimulation, correct? Yeah. I mean, it definitely does happen. And some women definitely can orgasm through penetration. A woman on top, for instance, can be you know a more common way for mm-hmm. a woman to orgasm through penetration. But yeah, the majority of women, if we're looking at percentages, don't orgasm through penetration. They orgasm through other means like mm-hmm. you know, uh, oral sex, clitoral play, use of toys, hands, those sorts of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to flip it on the other side, what are some of the common misconceptions that women have about men? Yeah, big ones as well, that men always want sex, are always up for sex. Mm -hmm. If they don't initiate or don't want sex, that they're broken, something's wrong with them, or they're not man enough, or they have low testosterone, or they need to go to a doctor, that they should always be able to perform. They should get an erection quickly and easily, maintain Mm -hmm. that erection, and should last for as long as they would like in the bedroom. Yeah. When really, the vast majority of men are complicated and their big head talks to their little head. And if they're anxious or, you know, nervous, or they really like the woman or it's their first time or with them or a vast, they're self-conscious about their body or their surroundings, their penis can stop working. And that's also really normal. And often most men ejaculate on penetration in like under three or four minutes. Whereas again, when we're looking at pornography, men are going for 10, 20 minutes, an hour plus with raging erections without having to use cock rings. So yeah, those sorts of misconceptions are predominant in the female culture. Interesting. Very interesting. I could totally see that. I was just, this just came to mind. Are you honest with your children about what you do? So my oldest daughter is two years old. Okay. So okay. yes, <laughs> in the sense of when she understands, old enough to understand then for yep. sure I will be open with her. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get looks, I forget because I'm very adamant about teaching proper body parts and the yes. labels for proper body parts. You don't call it your no-no place or your coochie or your flower. Mm-hmm. Um, that is teaching stigma from a very young age. You would wow. never call, you would never call your elbow 
your like lovely little lady dot. That would, be the, <laughs> that would be the weirdest thing ever. You would say, this is my elbow. So by labeling those parts of something else, we're immediately saying that there's stigma and there's something wrong or dirty or something ah. like that. So from a young age, I'm like, we will teach the proper body parts. So we're at the pool the other day and I'm changing her. And she says, mommy, my, my vulva hurts. Um, <laughs> she had a little rash and I need to put some diaper cream oh and stuff God. on it. And this lady looks at me and she's like, how old is your daughter? And I was like, Oh, she just turned two. And she's like, she knows what a vulva is. I was like, of course she does. But in my brain, I'm like, well, of course, every woman should know the difference between a vulva and a vagina, forgetting that my daughter's two and that's not necessarily always normal. So long-winded way to answer your question. Yes, I will definitely be open and honest, but she's a little young. When I was in nursery school and I was three years old, my uh, mom was trying to teach my sister and I the difference between a man and a woman. And she ended up getting called aside at nursery school because she said I came in and I announced to the class that my daddy has a penis. And I started <laughs> laughing and giggling. <laughs> She's like, um, Emily announced to everyone that her daddy has a penis. And we understand you're teaching her the proper analogy for things, but maybe necessarily not a good thing to share with the class. <laughs> <laughs> See, I disagree. I think that's amazing. That's a great- Great teaching opportunity. I'm glad you knew your dad had a penis. <laughs> That's important. I know my daughter, she walked again, probably she's going to hate me for saying this, but she's too young, so she'll never hear this. <laughs> she walked in on my partner having a shower and she was like, penis, penis, but she thinks that peanuts and penis sound very close. Oh my God. So she'll go, she misunderstood when we said daddy has a penis that she's saying that, you know, peanuts. So she laughs and goes, peanuts, peanuts, yum, yum. And my partner's just like, get her out of here. I can't handle this. This is so inappropriate. (laughs) And laughing so hard because she just doesn't understand peanuts and peanuts. Oh my Uh, God, that's hilarious. Yeah. You'll have to say that at her wedding. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So now where can people find more information about you? So my website is probably the best place. It just crashed a week ago. So hopefully- that's fun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was super lovely. So working with my developers and it should be up in a couple of days. But yeah, so Tisha Morgan, T-E-E-S-H-A-M-O-R-G-A-N. TishaMorgan.com is probably the best way. And if people are interested in education, especially if they're in the healthcare profession, mm-hmm. so nurses, doctors, therapists, counselors, social workers, etc. We also have a program through the Westland Academy of Clinical Sex Therapy, and they can just Google that. And there's lots of courses that are launched and being launched around consent, BDSM, ethical non-monogamy and polyamory to, you know, painful intercourse, which we call GPPPD for people to take and learn more about these sorts of things in an educated facet. So you can also check out that site. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. You're great at your job. You're easy to talk to. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs>